and welcome to Essential Descent. I'm Wilton Vaught, producer and host of the series. This episode is Opposing Imperialist Wars, a panel from the 2020 UNAC conference. UNAC is the United National Anti-War Coalition, and the conference theme was Rise Against Militarism, Racism, and Climate Crisis. We start with Baman Azad, Executive Secretary of the U.S. Peace Council and a member of the Administrative Committee of the United National Anti-War Coalition. Greetings, comrades and friends. I am honored to speak tonight in my dual capacity as the Executive Secretary of the U.S. Peace Council and member of the Administrative Committee of UNAC. In both capacities, I greet and salute all of you and wish this great conference a tremendous success. U.S. Peace Council and UNAC, as two of the leading anti-imperialist contingents of the U.S. peace movement, have a long history of close cooperation with each other. Together, we have organized very significant events in the past few years. As all of you are well aware, uh, the U.S. peace movement has a long history of struggle against imperialism's interventions in the internal affairs of other countries. But this history has had frequent ebbs and flows in different periods depending on the political situation of the time. The massive demonstrations that appeared before George W. Bush's invasion of Iraq, during which close to half a million anti-war people marched in Washington, D.C., dissipated after the start of the war and later went into hibernation with the election of Ajamu Bar- uh, uh, Barack Obama. <laughs> you shouldn't have done that, Ajamu. In 2008. We are so much closely working together that Ajamu is a common word for me. Every time. Um, Predictions for the future. <laughs> Although the warmongering policies of U.S. imperialism continued and even intensified during Obama administration, the U.S. peace movement remained relatively quiet in the fear of not attacking the first black president of the country. This also caused a deepening fragmentation within the peace movement with regard to how to respond to Obama's intensified militaristic policies. While the left and anti-imperialist forces continued their active opposition to Obama's administration's uh, interventionist policies, the more liberal forces limited themselves to signing petitions and appealing to various government authorities for policy changes. The election of Donald Trump as president, however, created a, a potential for reviving the peace movement once again. It removed all the masks and pretensions by openly threatening several countries with regime change and imposing or intensifying illegal U.S. sanctions against the targeted countries, especially Syria, Iran, and Venezuela. Trump's blatant imperialist threats also brought to the fore the conflict between the anti-imperialist and the liberal center forces within the peace movement. The liberal center forces, under the influence of President persistent media demonization of the leaders of nations like Iran, Syria, Venezuela, and even Russia refused to take side against U.S. imperialism interventions with the phony excuse that so-called both sides are bad. This was a great opportunity for the U.S. Peace Council and the leading organizations in UNAC 
to bring the left and anti-imperialist peace forces together and initiate the formation of a united front that would be able to force the whole peace movement to take side against imperialist interventions. Considering the U.S. foreign military bases as the main instrument and the launching pad of all U.S. imperialism's military aggressions around the world, together we drafted a unity statement and presented to the, our anti-imperialist allies in the peace movement for the creation of the broadest anti-imperialist coalition in the United States after several decades, namely the coalition against U.S. foreign military bases. The new coalition brought together for the first time a broad range of forces, including some significant segments of liberal center forces that had refused to take side against imperialism in the past. This coalition was further expanded into global campaign against U.S. NATO military bases. The result of these efforts was the convening of two tremendously successful and popular anti-basis conferences, first in Baltimore, Maryland in 2000, January 2018, and second, an international one in Dublin, Ireland in November 2018. Those conferences were clear indications that we were successfully moving toward the creation of a unified anti-imperialist peace movement in the United States and around the world, although a lot of work was still needed for us to reach that important goal. With the intensification of the attacks on Venezuela, the U.S. Peace Council decided that it was time for, the, for us to repeat what we did in 2016 with regard to U.S. intervention in Syria, i.e. sending a high-level peace and solidarity delegation consisting of the top leaders of the U.S. peace and justice movement to Venezuela. So we invited the leading members of our allied organization in the anti-basis coalition, which included many leading organizations of UNAC, and every one of them agreed to join the delegation. And thanks to the selfless and dedicated support from the, our sister organization in Venezuela, COSI, the U.S. Peace Council delegations was rapidly organized and was able to travel to Venezuela as quickly as March 2019. We had the honor of meeting with the many officials of Venezuelan governments, civil society leaders, community leaders, leadership of the COSI, the leadership of the Communist Party of Venezuela, and finally the President Maduro. This trip was provided, provided us with uh, much needed concrete information to allow us to defend the Bolivarian Revolution of Venezuela and its legitimate democratically elected government and president much more effectively. The heroic effort to protect the Venezuelan embassy was in fact in initiated by two of our delegation members, Kevin Zeese and Margaret Flowers, who are sitting here, <laughs> along with a few other allies. With this act, they took our anti-imperialist struggle in the United States to a higher level. Not only did they engage the movement in a direct defense of Venezuelan sovereignty, but exposed the U.S. imperialism's blatant violations of international law and the Vienna Convention. The whole movement was galvanized around this heroic act. All of our delegate members got involved in various forms from outside the embassy building, and significant part of the movement joined this to support the embassy protectors. With the U.S. Secret Service raid of the embassy and the arrest of our four remaining protectors, our struggle has entered into a new stage. Our comrades have been charged with the, with the false charge of 
interfering with protective functions of the state by the Secret Service and the government, which can carry maximum penalty of one year imprisonment plus $100,000 in fines. Although their first round of trials 10 days ago ended in hung jury due to the weakness of the Trump administration's <laughs> case against them, we are still concerned that the government might push for a retrial. So we are now faced with a long-term legal and political battle, not only in defense of our falsely charged comrades, but also with no less important struggle to expose U.S. imperialism crimes against the people of Venezuela and the whole humanity. For us, this is a very important struggle that hits at the core of U.S. imperialism's illegal interventions. We are determined to carry this struggle to its final victory. We will be standing with the people of Venezuela and their Bolivarian revolution to the end until we achieve victory regardless of what it takes. But in spite of all of our collective achievements, our peace movement is still too confused, fragmented, and weak to be able to put an end to U.S. imperialism aggression around the world. The main reason for this confusion, fragmentation, and weakness is its lack of general understanding of the nature of imperialism itself. Unless we, the concept of imperialism assumes a central position in the peace movement analysis of our current situation, the confusion and weakness will linger on and will keep, us, keep the peace movement from achieving its goals. What we need today is a unified, strong, anti-imperialist front within the peace movement to steer the whole movement in an anti-imperialist direction. We have obviously come a long way in that direction. The broad anti-imperialist coalitions and campaigns that we have organized so far during the past decade testify to this fact. But moving forward and meeting the challenges that we are facing today requires that we f further broaden, unify, and strengthen this anti-imperialist front by giving it a stronger coordinating course structure, one that can bring all U.S. anti-imperialist forces and organizations together in a single unified strategy against imperialist system itself, not just on various impacts or effects of imperialism. It is my hope that this will soon be realized. Thank you very much. You're listening to Essential Dissent. This episode is Opposing Imperialist Wars, a panel from the 2020 UNAC Conference. UNAC is the United National Anti-War Coalition, and the conference theme was Rise Against Militarism, Racism, and Climate Crisis. We just heard from Bauman Azad, Executive Secretary of the U.S. Peace Council and a member of the Administrative Committee of the United National Anti-War Coalition. Next up is Bernadette Ellerin, National Spokesperson for Bayon USA, which is at the forefront of the anti-imperialist mass movement in the Philippines. So I'm going to be coming from the perspective of Bayan, which has a chapter here in the U.S. And when we struggle against imperialism, in our context, we're really fighting for national liberation. That's what anti-imperialism is for us. And for many other neo-colonies around the world, they're fighting for their national liberation from the clutches of U.S. monopoly capitalism, U.S. militarism, U.S. imperialism. So, surprise! The Philippine government wants to kick out the U.S. troops from the Philippines. Do we support? Yeah. 
Yes, that's a good call. Uh, but we have to also monitor the basis for why this call is being projected by the Duterte government at this particular moment in time. This is President Duterte, who's all over the international news. And next to him is one of his closest allies in the Philippine Senate, that's Senator Ronald Bato de la Rosa, who is the former top-notch general of the Philippine National Police, which is funded by the U.S., as well as the main enforcer of the U.S.-funded drug war in the Philippines, which has taken the lives of over 30,000 victims in the country. So the call for the Duterte government to terminate the VFA, they actually issued a notice to the U.S. State Department calling for the termination of the Visiting Forces Agreement, which is a major um, military agreement between the U.S. and the Philippines, which allows for annual rotational uh, port calls, exercises, war games, drone exercises, rest and recreation, refueling, um, sex industry work in the Philippines because of the U.S. military presence. But the Duterte government is calling for its termination because the U.S. Congress has canceled the visa of Bato, that senator, on the basis of his involvement in the drug war and also involvement in the incarceration of major critics of the Duterte government in the Philippines. In particular, another senator, um, Leila de Lima, who is currently incarcerated because she's one of the most vocal critics of the Duterte government and the drug war in particular. So their basis is the U.S. visa. Our basis is U.S. imperialism. There's a difference between a U.S. visa and U.S. imperialism. This uh, cartoon here is an illustration. It's racist war propaganda from the turn of the 20th century to really justify the U.S. invasion, military invasion of the Philippines back in 1899 at the tail end of the, the Philippine victory over Spanish colonization. The U.S. came in and launched another, its first major large-scale war of aggression for conquest, for invasion, for occupation overseas, which was the Philippines. And after that, the Philippines was the only U.S. direct colony in the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, but now it's a U.S. neo-colony. So you can see how they really use racism to convince people that this war is justified. And because it was so racist, I want to point out, this is February's Black History Month, that many of the black soldiers in the U.S. infantries that were stationed in the Philippines defected to the Philippine side because they found solidarity um, with many with the Filipino rebels. They recognized the racist character of this war, and because of that, they felt they had more in common with the Filipinos than they did with the U.S. military. So that's back in 1899. This is more recent photos of U.S. military presence uh, because of the VFA and various other U.S. military agreements. The U.S. are in the Philippines under the auspices of counterterrorism. There are regular war games, regular drone exercises, regular rest and recreation stations in the Philippines with the U.S., so this is a timeline of U.S. military agreements with the Philippines. So like I said, from 1899 to 1946, the Philippines was a direct U.S. colony, which was basically a, a colonial government. And it was really the U.S. colonial government that established the Philippine military. First, as the Philippine Constabulary, and so the armed forces of the Philippines as it exists today is more loyal to U.S. imperialism than it is to the Philippine government. It's supported by U.S. imperialism. It's basically a, a proxy army, a surrogate army for U.S. imperialism in not only the Philippines, but in the region. 
1947, after the U.S. granted independence to the Philippines in 1946, the U.S. was uh, very clear to establish the military bases agreement, which would ensure that the U.S. would have military bases all over the country. So between 1947 and the present, there have been about 20 or so U.S. military bases that we know of. Some were official and permanent, like Subic Naval and Clark Air Force Base. Some are unofficial and de facto, which is what we have now. We have unofficial U.S. military facilities that are being housed in Philippine military facilities. In 1951, another major agreement, the Mutual Defense Treaty between the U.S. and the Philippines was established. Again, this is a Cold War era anti-communist agreement to basically stop the expansion of communism and the influence of communism in the region, particularly in the Philippines. And then in 1966, the basis agreement was extended for another 25 years. From 1998 to 1999, the Visiting Forces Agreement, or the VFA, the one that... um, the actual agreement that the Duterte government wants to terminate right now was ratified, introduced and ratified. And again, this, this agreement, like I said, allows for more port calls, more rotational uh, presence in a way that can be very insidious because you don't really know where they are all concentrated in the country. And then in 2000, the first Balikatan exercises were established. These are war games regular war exercises between the U.S. and Philippine militaries under the auspices of fighting off global terrorism. In 2001, after 9-11, the Philippines was named the second front to the U.S. war on terror by the Bush administration. So since then, Balikatan has been uh, annual exercises all over the country, has killed many people all over the country as well. In uh, 2002, the MLSA, or the Mutual Logistics and Support Agreement, was established, establishing that the Philippines and the U.S. would equally support each other with their defense and logistics and cooperation. Of course, that's not really the case. These agreements are one-sided and onerous between a master and slave type of relationship. And then in 2014, we have the Enhanced Defense and Cooperation Agreement, or the EDCA, which is another de facto basis agreement that allows for these cooperative locations where uh, more U.S. troops can operate out of different types of facilities all over the country. So the Philippines is one big U.S. military playground. And you don't really know at any given time where the U.S. troops are based because many of them, most of them are special operations forces. And then I will just add the counterinsurgency operations are another form of U.S. military intervention all over the country. Wherever there are U.S. bases, there are counterinsurgency operations. This is a picture of Marawi City in the southern Philippines. It is a Muslim-majority city. In the southern Philippines, we have a Muslim-minority population that are fighting for their self-determination. They have their own self-defense units that are in negotiations with the Philippine government for autonomy. So the Filipino people have been struggling against U.S. imperialism and military presence in the country for a very long time, since the time of the Commonwealth era in the Philippines. And it was really this struggle that's at the heart of the shutdown of the former permanent bases, Asubic and Clark, back in 1991. So I'm here to also say that we are living in the era of imperialism. That's bad news. But we're also living in an era of intensifying people's resistance all over the world, especially um, revolutions that are being waged for national and social liberation, like in the Philippines and all over the global south. I think it was mentioned earlier that we have to understand the character of imperialism as it exists 
And in order to sharpen and expand our knowledge of imperialism, it's important to note that imperialism itself, that crisis is endemic to imperialism. And right now, imperialism is an unprecedented scale of its own crisis, no? On one hand, there's been no real economic growth, even though the financial oligarchy says there is. There's really no economic growth all over the world. And on the other hand, this economic crisis spurns political crisis, which spurns fascism all over the world. On the other hand, people's resistance is intensifying and not allowing itself to be pacified by the ideological attacks of imperialism. So all of this makes for a very unstable character of imperialism right now, which is favorable for those of us in the anti-imperialist movement. So all over the North, in North America and Europe, in the global South, people are rising up to take back the land. Workers are stepping out of the factories, calling for strikes. Students are walking out of their campuses, calling for resistance. The indigenous communities all over the world are also rising up to take back their land from imperialist wars of plunder. And in many areas, revolution is being waged in a very militant way through armed struggle. And that is a reality. Armed struggle is a reality of the crisis. It's a reality and it is a legitimate form of resistance against imperialism. And so I just want to end with um, sharpening our, our anti-imperialist movement here in the U.S. really does involve international solidarity with all forms of resistance all over the globe that are happening out of necessity, out of people's right to defend themselves and protect their ancestral domain. And so we want to see um, uh, an anti-imperialist movement here in the U.S. that's really in touch and in solidarity with these movements all over the world. We should celebrate the resistance happening all over the world. In the Philippines, the New People's Army will be celebrating their 51st anniversary next month. Thank you. You're listening to Essential Dissent. This episode is Opposing Imperialist Wars, a panel from the 2020 UNAC Conference. UNAC is the United National Anti-War Coalition, and the conference theme was Rise Against Militarism, Racism, and Climate Crisis. We just heard from Bernadette Ellerin, national spokesperson for Bayon USA, which is at the forefront of the anti-imperialist mass movement in the Philippines. Next up is Camilo Mejia, an Iraq War veteran and war resistor who was court-martialed and jailed for desertion. He is now a writer, speaker, and activist in the military resistance movement. I'd like to start by saying that we didn't write our speeches together, I swear. But uh, there seem to be so many recurring themes, uh, which I think it's a testament to the times that we're in. On November 1st, 2018, John Bolton gave a speech in Miami in which he first referred to the uh, Troika of Tyranny to refer to Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, stating that the three countries are causing tremendous amount of human suffering. So today, as I sit here and speak to you, I would like to speak to you as a Nicaraguan, a Sandinista, and a proud citizen of the Troika. Because being a citizen of the Troika means that my country is a main target of U.S. aggression, which means we must be doing something good. And just like the Axis of Evil speech uh, back in 2002 when George W. Bush laid down what would become U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, this uh, Troika of Tyranny speech also has basically laid down the foundations of U.S. aggression towards Latin America. 
So I'd like to speak a little bit of the context that we're in, even though it may feel a little bit repetitive because of what my um, two colleagues here have spoken about. But in simple terms, I believe that the uh, time of U.S. hegemony has come to an end. And it's actually a lot more serious than that because what we're also seeing is that the uh, neoliberal economic world order also has proven itself to be ineffective and to be causing tremendous amount of suffering, human suffering, as opposed to the Troika. And so what have these neoliberal policies caused? They have caused gross inequality, environmental destruction, great poverty, disease, infant and maternal mortality, the destruction of country's infrastructure, the destruction of country's sovereignty. And alongside that, what we have is a world of emerging world powers, that are taking an approach that is very different and that is basically grounding its new relationships in collaboration, in the rebuilding of infrastructure, the development of new cleaner technologies. And so what we're seeing really is that we're seeing that there's an alternative being created in the face of all this neoliberal suffering. And yet what we see is that the United States, rather than change its ways and right its many wrongs, continues to make the same mistakes and to try to impose its neoliberal policies all over the, um, the American continent and the world. I don't have to convince you that many of the um, disastrous impacts that we are seeing in Latin America and the rest of the world, we are also seeing here. The uh, neoliberal policies of privatization and austerity have caused the vast majority of people living in the United States great suffering from gentrification to environmental injustice and destruction to police and state brutality, to housing, healthcare, and education crisis. Neoliberalism, not the Troika, is causing all this tremendous human and environmental suffering. The situation, as my comrades have said, abroad isn't any less urgent. The massive uprisings that we're seeing from Tegucigalpa, Honduras, and San Pedro Sula, to Paris, France, and throughout the rest of the world, are in direct response to the impact of neoliberal policies and the impact that that's having on the vast majority of humanity. Neoliberal policies that translate to environmental destruction, morbid rates of mortality, hunger, disease, and war, only to name a few. So here we are this evening, and what more could we possibly ask for than to be able to participate in an anti-imperialist conference in the belly of the beast? In this time of transition of global scale, we are at the very epicenter of that transition, which means that we have to be very aware of the circumstances and historical context in which we find ourselves, which presents many dangers, but also many opportunities. And in order to address those opportunities, I'd like to maybe just for a few minutes go back to the Troika. And I'll speak more specifically about Nicaragua. Between the years of 1926 and 1933, the United States used a big portion of its military power including warships, artillery, and thousands of well-armed U.S. Marines to capture and kill the last remaining of the rebel generals in Nicaragua, Augusto Cesar Sandino. General Sandino gave birth to the popular and anti-imperialist struggle for sovereignty and independence from the United States when he refused to accept terms of a truce that would have resulted in handing control of the country and its resources to the United States. He continued to fight a a guerrilla warfare in which he and his men were at a gross disadvantage Yet thanks to the intimate knowledge of terrain, popular support, and the unbreakable resolve of his patriotic army, General Sandino prevailed in 1933, and since then, 
the Marines have never occupied Nicaraguan territory again. However, the United States did not give up. They simply resorted to the use of lies and betrayal to obtain what General Sandino had denied them for years in battle. They employed the services, the services of a bourgeois liberal general named Anastasio Somoza to lure General Sandino into a trap, and he assassinated him exactly 86 years ago today. But the legacy of General Sandino inspired the struggle for liberation of a revolutionary movement that not only eventually defeated what became the Somoza dynasty, which ruled Nicaragua for more than 40 years, but which also became one of the three governments collectively known today as the Troika of Tyranny. Of course, I'm talking about the Sandinista National Liberation Front, or FSLN, the colors of which I'm wearing around my neck tonight. And so... When the Sandinista National Liberation Front defeated the U.S.-supported dictatorship of the Somoza family in 79, the United States did not wait long to launch a counteroffensive to retain control and began training and financing the, mer the mercenary army known as the Contras. But since U.S. Congress had banned the funding of mercenary angry, uh, armies, the Reagan administration had to resort to creative ways to support the puppet army, including the sale of weapons to Iran during the Iran-Iraq War, a scandal that became known as the Iran-Contra affair. That was the same war in which the U.S. armed the Iraqi army of Saddam Hussein with chemical weapons which were later used, used against Kurds and the Iranian military and civilian population. Another scheme to keep the war going saw the CIA facilitating the trafficking of crack cocaine into African-American neighborhoods in L.A., which became not only a health epidemic but also a social one as it created a violent drug trafficking environment, causing alarming rates of addiction, mental health issues, unemployment, homelessness, to name a few, all while the Reagan administration cut funding to social programs, including mental health services, housing, education, and other basic needs. When the FSLN lost the general election in 1990, a series of neoliberal governments immediately began to undermine all of the achievements of the revolution, including the land reform, the literacy campaign, victories in gender equality, healthcare, education programs, workers' rights, and much more. The country ceased to be a sovereign state nation to become a cheap market for transnational companies to savagely exploit with no regard to the country's people or its natural environment. A situation similar to the drug epidemic of LA ensued in Nicaragua as most of our citizens lost the safety net that had been provided by the Sandinista government. Mortality rates once again skyrocketed, campesinos lost their land, illiteracy went through the roof, poor children became malnourished, massive unemployment led to higher crime rates and unsafe neighborhoods. And with the sale of the electric company, the country went into a 16-year period of literal darkness. Despite the grim reality that befell Nicaragua for 16 years, uh, the United States government or the U.S. corporate media never reported, much less complained about, the morbid existence of most Nicaraguans during the 16-year neoliberal period. There were no human rights organizations writing reports about the alarming rates of mortality, hunger, disease, or anything else called the privatization and austerity neoliberal policies. The Organization of American States never expressed any interest in the country, despite blatant electoral fraud overseen by the United States 
to prevent the Sandinistas from returning to power. It was as if the country did not exist anymore. So today, Sandinista government, in power for 12 years, has been able to cut poverty in half, extreme poverty by two-thirds, provide universal health care and education to all our citizens, rebuild their infrastructure, our infrastructure, become one of the safest nations in Latin America, achieve 90% of food sovereignty, increase access to electric power from, from 54% to 92%, launch credit and lending programs to support hundreds of thousands of micro, small, and medium-sized businesses that place the country in the top three nations in the world in terms of gender equality. Nicaragua, <laughs> Nicaragua is not alone in these achievements. Under Presidents Chavez and Maduro, despite constant U.S. intervention in the form of sanctions, sabotage, and regime change operations, Venezuela has launched a series of programs designed to promote the development of the South American nation, including housing programs that have built approximately 3 million homes for Venezuela's poorest citizens. <laughs> Food distribution programs education programs, and much more. In the case of Cuba, not only has the revolution survived over 60 years of economic, political, diplomatic, and even military war from the United States, they have managed to achieve incredible victories in healthcare and education, not to mention medicine, climate resilience, the development of a sustainable economy, and much more. Of the hundreds of millions of hungry children who roam the world homeless, not a single one of them lives in Cuba. As a revolutionary island, despite decades of U.S. aggression, has managed to completely eradicate homelessness. This is the Troika. But I share all of this with you, not in the interest of my country or Venezuela or Cuba. I'm sharing this with you tonight because I keep hearing people say that the enemy of my enemy is not my friend. Or denouncing U.S. imperialism doesn't mean that we have to support dictatorships. Another common one is we must support grassroots movements standing up to totalitarian regimes, even if they once were progressive. So let me tell you something. The enemy of your enemy, namely the Troika nations, as well as other nations who are being targeted by U.S. regime change policies and other forms of aggression, are not being targeted because they are dictatorships. They are being targeted because we represent an alternative to the prevailing neoliberal world order. which is the same world order that's denying American youth of a bright future, that's destroying our environment, that's turned basic human necessities into products to be bought and sold in transnational markets. We need to build a united anti-imperialist, internationalist movement that is capable to understand the historical moment in which we find ourselves. A movement that is capable to tell the difference between an economic model that serves the interests of the poor and not the interests of the rich and transnational corporations. We need to understand how U.S.-funded NGOs have seized control of the post-truth narrative of dictatorship and democracy, and how they have weaponized identity politics, human and civil rights to create division among us and to redirect our solidarity efforts towards the rejection of governments and revolutionary movements that are fighting tooth and nail against the very same policies that are causing tremendous human suffering and environmental degradation in our communities right here in the United States. Yeah. 
U.S. imperialism has many allies, very powerful allies, and they are not divided. They don't waste time vilifying each other as they launch media smear campaigns that pave the way for regime change in Latin America, the Middle East, Africa, Asia, and everywhere else, where they are burning black and brown bodies and destroying progressive programs for the poor under the guise of pro-democracy movements. The same people who flood U.S. streets with drug and violence are supporting efforts to overthrow revolutionary governments. The same people that have facilitated the use of chemical weapons against Iraqi Kurds and Iranian military and civilian populations and who are demolishing Palestinian homes are funding mercenary armies in places like Colombia and Nicaragua and they are behind the narratives that keep us debating the merits and flaws of revolutionary governments fighting for self-determination while they stand united in the destruction of our environment, our future, and our ability to live a life with dignity and to fight for what is decent and right. So, to wrap up, I stand here tonight, or I sit here tonight, rather, as a proud citizen of the Troika, a Nicaraguan, as someone who has been a Sandinista since before birth, because both of my parents were insurgents in the, in the fight against Somoza, and who will remain Sandinista until the very moment I draw my last breath. And I'm not here to apologize for it. I'm not here to apologize for my government as we build this movement. I am not here to request help for our struggle. I am here to tell everyone that your struggle and mine are one and the same. And that if we are to work together, as we should, we must build an anti-imperialist movement that is grounded in a strong understanding of regime change in the 21st century and that is capable to go beyond the corporate headline to dig deeper, to reach across smear campaigns and see through the smokescreen of imperialism in order to see the values that unite our struggles and that can help us work together as we fight for a better world. Thank you. You're listening to Essential Dissent. This episode is Opposing Imperialist Wars, a panel from the 2020 UNAC Conference. UNAC is the United National Anti-War Coalition, and the conference theme was Rise Against Militarism, Racism, and Climate Crisis. We just heard from Camilo Mejia, an Iraq war veteran and war resister who was court-martialed and jailed for desertion. He is now a writer, speaker, and activist in the military resistance movement. Next, we'll hear remarks from panel moderator Joe Lombardo. Joe Lombardo is a longtime activist and is the co-coordinator of UNAC. The words uh, that I just heard are codified in one of the slogans that UNAC uses, which is, end the wars at home and abroad. Um, because we see the militarization in, our, in the black and brown communities, at the borders, and we see the attacks on working people throughout this country as well. UNAC, this year, is 10 years old, and this is our fifth national conference, and we survived this time when other coalitions perhaps have not. It was a difficult time. When UNAC was formed at a conference up in Albany of 800 people, People were questioning why we needed an anti-war movement. Some people actually said, well, you know, Obama's elected, 
and he's going to end the wars. We thought not so. And we thought it was very important while there were troops overseas, um, while the wars were continuing, that we have an anti-war movement. And we put together a coalition that today has about 160 member groups. If your group is not a member of UNAC, there is a form in here, and you can fill it out, and you can join or go onto the website and join there. Uh, we need a movement, an anti-war movement in this country today more than ever. And I've been involved in the anti-war movement forever. I started my anti-war activity as a college student against the Vietnam War. And um, I actually was a, a staff person in one of the two major coalitions of the time, the National Peace Action Coalition, that organized some of the huge, massive rallies where millions of people came out a number of times, marched in the streets, protested, used all sorts of tactics, uh, but it was a gigantic mass movement. But you know, in the beginning of the Vietnam War, it wasn't a mass movement. In fact, in the very early polls in the Vietnam War, they were saying only 8% opposed the Vietnam War. They actually called it the only consensus war in U.S. history at the time. But nine years later, 88% of the American people were against the war. So that shows you what we can do, and that's the task that is in front of us. And anti-war sentiment grew and became so deep in the, in the society, especially in the culture, in the youth culture, in music, in the dress, in everything that was part of um, living uh, your life at that particular time. And it got down right to the level of the soldiers. And the soldiers, towards the end of that war, refused to fight. It also happened in the context and helped push that context of other struggles that were developing. Black nationalist movement and black liberation movement, Chicano movement uh, and the Puerto Rican movement that was taking place, the women's movement, right for abortion, struggle for abortion rights, the gay rights movement uh, that took place. And these movements were changing the consciousness, were part of the changed consciousness of the whole population, and it got right down to the soldiers. And the soldiers ceased to be a fighting force in Vietnam. They refused to fight. They were told, we're going to go take that hill by one of their officers, and they would say, well, you go take that hill. In the last year that the U.S. was in Vietnam, there were more than 800 cases of fragging, which was um, people deciding they're not going to follow those people, and they're, if they're not going to kill the Vietnamese, they're going to get rid of their leaders. And they really couldn't fight. Uh, there was a black nationalist struggle that was going on in the military. There was um, peace signs on the helmets of the soldiers, and the U.S. had to get out. And, you know, in the early days when I was young, we were learning in, in school that the U.S. never won, never lost a war. After Vietnam, they never said that anymore. You might remember the pictures of the helicopters leaving and the people that collaborated with the Americans trying to hold on to get out of there. And they, they put their tails between their legs and, and, they, and the U.S. Um, got out and lost that war. And the Vietnamese people won. But at a tremendous, tremendous cost. Four million Viet, uh, Vietnamese were killed. 
About 50,000 Americans uh, were killed. But those costs don't even tell the whole story. As soldiers know who have to go through these stories, uh, the PTSD and the um, suicides and the uh, mental uh, problems and uh, alcoholism and so forth that affect them for all their life and affect all of society. We need to end all of those wars. But after the Vietnam War, they developed a, a, a word, a phrase that they said. It was called the Vietnam Syndrome. It was not made up by the Vietnam anti-war movement. It was made up by the media and the politicians. The Vietnam Syndrome was what they thought was a bad thing. You see, people in the United States didn't want to see, didn't want to go to war again like Vietnam. And so they were very cautious after Vietnam in terms of moving towards wars. And it took a whole generation, and then what happened at 9-11, whatever happened at 9-11, to turn the population back to a war footing and say, let's go to war. But it didn't last even that long. You know, they invaded and occupied uh, Afghanistan and still are there from 2001 to today, almost 20 years, the longest war the U.S. has ever been in against one of the weakest countries. And the Taliban today controls more territory in Afghanistan than they did at the time of the U.S. invasion. And that's why the U.S. is negotiating with them, because uh, that's, they, they can't win that war even. The Iraq war, where they went in and invaded. But then they thought, maybe that's not going to be a good thing. You remember February 15, 2003, Right before we went into Iraq, uh, millions came out in city after city after city around the world. A million in London, a million in Tokyo, a million in Rome. We had a half a million here in New York, another 250,000 in in San Francisco. And uh, we marched and we protested. And the New York Times had to say, well, there are still two superpowers in the world. One is the United States and the other is the people that were out in the streets. But the U.S. didn't budge. I got that idea that it was a different time than the mass movement during the um, Vietnam War when Bush came out and saw all these people. Demonstrations for the first time in history took place in every continent in the world, including Antarctica, where there are two places where there were populations in Antarctica. One is a right at the pole, and the other is at the, uh, some base on the shelf. The people that got out and protested, the scientists and so forth at the pole, around the South Pole, made a peace sign with their bodies in the snow and took a picture of it in the helicopter. So there were demonstrations in every continent. But Trump came out and said, I mean, uh, Bush, oh, same difference, came out and said, um, same, came out and said, well, it's a good focus group, and they didn't, didn't move them. The demonstrations didn't move them. We never thought a demonstration could move anybody, even a mass demonstration. But a mass movement, and demonstrations are part of building a mass movement. And that's what we need to build today, is that kind of mass movement. But it didn't move them because it couldn't move them. The United States today is in, has military in 172 countries around the world. In any given day, U.S. Special Forces are in operation in about 70 countries. The United States has about 20 times the number of foreign military bases as all other countries in the world combined. 
The military-industrial complex, along with the prison-industrial complex, are part of the entire economy of the United States. We'd collapse without it. You see, all these politicians on these debates, these uh, Democratic debates that are taking place, making all these promises. Well, you know, with the discretionary tax dollar today, about 64 cents out of every discretionary tax dollar goes to the military. There's no way in the world they can do the programs that they're all saying with the other uh, 36% of, of the tax dollars that are going on. It's such a part of the economy, the military-industrial complex right now, that our economy would collapse. We say that we are, have a low unemployment rate, which is not true. They change the way they count unemployment figures, so it sounds low. It's just simply not true. But could you imagine if we demilitarized, if we told the soldiers, go home, get a job, if we took the 2.2 million people out of the jails, 25% of the world's population, jail population, is in the United States, and we only have 5% of the world's population, and took the 2 million people that keep them in jails and said, get out, go out and get a, a good job, get an honest job. Could our economy support that? How could it do it? It couldn't do it. And so they're going to fight like crazy. And the fight against war is a fight to end that kind of system. Today, we can say something we didn't say during the Vietnam War, that it was difficult to say because there was so much red baiting. We have to end capitalism to end war. We have to do it to save the earth. We have no choice. And today, the anti-war movement coming together in a coalition of many, many groups and understanding that there's a war at home and a war abroad and bringing all those forces together under one umbrella into a coalition, many battles, many struggles. We need to support them all. If we can do that, you know, 35, people 35 and, and younger in the United States in their majority, despite all the red baiting that has happened in this country, believe Socialism is a better solution than capitalism. It is our job. It's a hard job. It's our job to mobilize that sentiment, to mobilize those forces, to bring together a mass movement together that can change the system, bring us a world of peace and prosperity and no more war um, for all people. And that's what we do. And that's what we're trying to do. And that's what you're all doing here. And I thank you for being here. And if you're not part of UNEC, please be part of UNEC. We need you. Thank you. You're listening to Essential Dissent. This episode is Opposing Imperialist Wars, a panel from the 2020 UNEC conference. UNEC is the United National Anti-War Coalition, and the conference theme was Rise Against Militarism, Racism, and Climate Crisis. We just heard from panel moderator Joe Lombardo. Next, we'll hear a short segment from the Q&A where the panelists respond to the question, how can we explain these ideas to young people? Right now, young people are being brought into organizing and social justice movements within a highly corrupt environment that has been co-opted by corporate money. The entire ecosystem of identity politics is sucking young people into a black hole of neoliberal imperialism disguised as pro-democracy movements. And so we need to rebuild 
movements and spaces for young people to really learn how to be activists, how to be grassroots fighters uh, against imperialism. And I think that the same way that we have to talk to adults, we have to empower people with the right tools to understand how U.S. imperialism is taking place today. We have to empower people with a historic perspective of all these movements that are being accused of being dictatorships and totalitarian regimes. We have to educate people on how to tell the difference between a revolutionary economic model and a neoliberal model. We have to train people on how to follow the money trail. We have to train people to go beyond the headlines. We have to train people to go to the actual source of the information and to learn to read between the lines. Because if we don't do that, then we're wasting our time. Well, I'm proud to say that Buy-In USA is a bulk of our membership are young people, and we're very proud members of UNAC. The question of imperialism is not a question of generations. It's a question of crisis and um, affected communities. And I think the reason why we have been able to um, organize a lot of Filipino-American youth in the U.S. is because we, we consciously work to educate expose and oppose that our very existence here in the U.S. is a product of U.S. imperialist invasion of our country and colonialism. So when we expose that fact, many Filipino Americans who suffer from identity issues, you know, not feeling that they belong because of colonial amnesia here, that's in, in our education system and even in the Philippines, has erased that history and has never been explained to us. That's a starting point for many of our young people that come out of the schools. We also consciously encourage all of our membership, which are young people again, to integrate with the poor people in their communities. And many of them come from working class communities. They're working class themselves. But we consciously push those in the universities to integrate with the working class, to proletarianize, to be with the poor. And I think that type of exposure to the very crisis of imperialism motivates many of our young people to want to fight back and wins them over to the anti-imperialist struggle. Well, to me, it's a very critical question at this stage. I was talking to our friend, the comrade uh, Bill, outside, and I said, Bill, what happens if the old guards die today? Who is going to lead the movement from this point on? Because we are far behind in terms of getting the young people to get involved. And it's a statement of fact. Um, My personal view, although it's a limited suggestion, is that we have to go to places where they are. And to me, one of the places is classes, educational system. We have relinquished that to the establishment. I think we should take those classes back through all of the progressive teachers, academics. And I'm speaking as a retired professor of sociology. And i give you a couple of examples because I've been teaching courses on imperialism. I've been teaching courses about socialism. Designed them and taught them. Got away with it. But I did it. And i give you a couple of examples. I, I designed a course on 21st century socialism and took uh, for the honors of students and took six of my students to Cuba during that course. Interesting example, I mean, thing that I would like to tell you is that on our way back in Havana Airport, I saw one of the girls crying. I said, Michelle, why are you crying? 
She said, we are leaving Cuba. I don't want to go back there. <laughs> True story. People have to see those places. Why don't we organize tours? Take them to those countries. Let them see where they are. I've been teaching courses on imperialism, and I give you one example. It was during the Occupy Wall Street time. I was teaching it in central New Jersey, and I showed them a film on imperialism. Three of them that same night after class packed up and went to, to New York that same night on train to participate in Occupy Wall Street. But the jaws drops when you first introduce the subject. They don't know that. And this is the issue. We have to be able to find places or venues or connection link places, link up places, to really link up with the young people. We cannot just sit here in our own organizations and say we should do this, we should do that. We have to really take the steps to go to them, and it's the important part. Thank you. You've been listening to Essential Descent. I'm Wilton Vaught, producer and host of the series. This episode was Opposing Imperialist Wars, a panel from the 2020 UNAC conference. UNAC is the United National Anti-War Coalition, and the conference theme was Rise Against Militarism, Racism, and Climate Crisis. You can find live-streamed videos of this conference on the UNAC Facebook page. You can find Essential Descent on YouTube, Facebook, and iTunes, and you can download the audio for free via RadioForAll.net. That's Radio, the number 4, All.net. Thanks for listening.